The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. On this first day of summer 2016, welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Every Father's Day, my family has a terrific family reunion in uh, Syracuse, New York. My dad lived to be 90 years old, and when he died, his wife graciously carried on with the tradition. So now many of us from several generations gather to celebrate getting together on Father's Day. A few hours before we were to set out to get on the road to Syracuse, I had a call from an IONS board member. Could I write a message of sympathy to the people of Orlando concerning the tragic shooting with 50 dead and dozens more in the hospital. The awakened contrast of the two situations, my happy family reunion versus the loss of so many members and friends in that shooting, made my heart ache. And here's what I wrote. Words can't express the sorrow an event like the Orlando shooting brings to our hearts. And where the pain ends, the questions begin. Why did the shooter, a Muslim who was cruel to his wives and perhaps even gay himself, choose to kill so many gay people he had spent evenings with in that same setting? Why did he evoke invoke ISIS as his inspiration for this violence when it might have been a reaction to his own father who had reportedly been uh, uh, said to have been homophobic, homophobic himself? How has religion in general played a role in such destructive behavior? And not only in Orlando, but throughout the world, so that politicians get to run on a platform built on fear, outlawing Muslim immigrants and visitors to our shores. As the president said recently, nothing we could do would play into the extremist hands more than that. Divide and conquer has been the perennial method those in power have used to manipulate peoples against peoples. Economic, political, racial, sexual, and religious extremism are the tools and we, the people of the world, have been manipulated over and over. We are broken by poverty, war, hatred, bigotry, and anger, and then we're told who to blame for our misery. It's the blacks, the gays, the third world poor, the rich, the Muslims, the Catholics, the atheists, the Jews, the communists. The list is endless. And all it does is line the pockets of the talking heads and fuel the sale of guns. Where has, ins- where has sanity gone? It's sold out to the profit motive. As the publications editor for IONS, I'm looking forward to our convention meeting at Orlando's Embassy Suites, July 28th through the 31st. Appropriately, the theme this year is Paths to Healing and Wholeness. Our organization is all about what happens to us when we die and what that experience can teach us about life here. We offer little in the way of specific economic political, racial, sexual, or religious answers, except to say the answer. The big answer is the one we've known all along, that all those fears being heavily marketed to us today could be driven away by the power of love. How do we know that? We know because of the experience of those who have seen the other side and returned to tell us. They know what they saw and often can prove it as well. They can prove that all those people we've been blaming, the blacks, the gays, the third world poor, the rich, the Muslims, the Catholics, the atheists, the Jews, indeed everyone on earth, including you and me, 
face a short life here in a self-inflicted hell, followed by an eternity in the love in the light of uh, God's love. How can we know it? Because millions of people from all walks of life have been there and returned to tell the tale. The fact is we are all in the same boat, and we are threatening to sink that boat with our hatred and violence, sink the boat that's keeping us all from drowning. If the 50 souls who crossed over on June 13th could come back today and speak on national television, I feel certain of what they would say. They would say, stop the hate speech, stop the fear, stop the blaming, the persecution, the vilifying, the politics of division, and stop all the killing that results. They would tell us that they are in a better place by far, but they would encourage us to try, to try, try to bring the light of love to earth as it is in heaven. So that's what I wrote to Orlando, but I couldn't really stop thinking about it, especially what happens when many people die close together or even at the same time. I have heard soldiers recount tales of their own near-death experiences where their souls traveled for a while with souls of their companions until the end ear who was told he had to return or she had to return. Even the first well-known story from Plato's Republic about a soldier named Ur gives a parallel description. And just to refresh your memory, I thought I'd read a bit of that. So Plato wrote, I will tell you a tale, not one of the tales which Odysseus tells to the hero um, Alcinous, yet this too is a tale of a hero, Ur, the son of um, Arminius, a Pamphylian by birth. He was slain in battle, and ten days afterwards, when the bodies of the dead were taken up already in a state of corruption, his body was found unaffected by decay and carried away home to be buried. And on the twelfth day, as he was lying on the funeral pyre, he returned to life and told them what he had seen on the other world. He said that when his soul left the body, he went on a, a journey with a great company, and that they came to a mysterious place, in which there were two openings in the earth. They were near together, and over against them were two other openings in the heaven above. In the intermediate space there were judges seated, who commanded the just after they had given judgment on them and had bound their sentences in front of them to ascend by the heavenly way on the right hand. And in like manner the unjust were bidden by them to descend by the lower way on the left hand. These also bore the symbols of their deeds, but fastened on their backs. He drew near, and they told him that he was to be a messenger who would carry the report of the other world to men, and they they bade him hear and see all that was about to be heard and seen at that place. Then he beheld and saw on one side the souls departing at either opening of heaven and earth when sentences had been given to them, and at the other two other openings other souls some ascending out of the earth, dusty and worn with travel, some descending out of heaven, clean and bright. And arriving ever and anon, they seemed to have come from a long journey, and they went forth with gladness into the meadow, where they encamped as at a festival, and those who knew each other embraced and conversed, the souls which came from earth curiously inquiring about the things above, and the souls which came from heaven about the things beneath." So to summarize that quickly, um, Ur and uh, others who were killed in his battle were traveling across a field. They came to a place of judgment 
which is maybe the the uh, life review that people with modern near-death experiences talk about. Or perhaps there are angels who can judge and do judge and send us to a temporary place of reward or a temporary place of punishment. That's the story from Plato. Now, when people die together, they are often aware of one another and can even communicate with one another. When Jeff Olson's family had their tragic accident on that highway north of Las Vegas, Jeff tells of how his soul and that of his wife and infant son uh, rose from the wreck, but then his wife told him that he needed to come back to care for the child who remained alive in the car. It's a, it's a fascinating story. You can hear it um, when we interviewed Jeff Olson on our April 18th, 2016 show. So my curiosity about all this has crossed my mind before, and especially when I saw the TV pictures of the plane striking the Twin Towers on 9-11. So many souls leaving their bodies together. In individual accounts of NDEs, we hear of angels and even Jesus himself greeting the deceased. But what happens when nearly 3,000 souls come knocking at the same time? So my answer to myself has usually been, well, lots of people in the world are dying all the time, so crossing over must be set up to handle the rush. And I'd put it out of my mind, at least until the next plane crash or major bus or train accident when dozens more would perish. Can the dying in such an accident console one another, or do they just confuse or even terrify one another? Is uh, that the subconscious source of so many people's fear of flying? No, not just a fear of dying, but dying in a plane plunging out of the sky with the terror of all the other passengers as they wait to, to hit the ground. Well, these uh, events are called a group NDE, and um, PMH Atwater has described uh, group NDEs this way. These are rare, but they do occur, she writes. With this kind, a whole group of people simultaneously seem to experience the same or similar episode. What makes these so spectacular and challenging is that all or most of the experiencers see each other actually leave their bodies as it happens, then dialogue with each other and share messages and observations while still experiencing the near-death state. Their separate reports afterward either match or nearly so. Reports like these emerge most often from events of a harrowing nature that involve a lot of people. Shared and group experiences imply that no matter how sure we are that near-death states mean near-death states mean this or that and are the result of whatever, no single idea, theory, or pat answer can explain them. Even clues from the powerful patterning that researchers like myself have identified fail to explain all aspects of the phenomenon. <clears throat> Reflecting on the meaning of such events, uh, when people die uh, more in a group, let's say, uh, it's really nothing new. When I was still a child, I remember my mother talking about a novel she really liked titled The Bridge of San Luis Rey. The story by Thornton Wilder was about a monk who became fascinated with the collapse of an ancient Incan rope bridge and wanted to figure out why the five people who plunged to their deaths below happened to be the ones on the bridge when it went down. This rope bridge was ancient and 
No doubt tens of thousands of travelers had crossed it safely until then. Uh, so why was it at that moment that the bridge collapsed, and why was it that those five people in particular were on it? So here's a part of the story summary as presented in Wikipedia. The first few pages of the first chapter of The Bridge of San Luis Rey explain the book's basic premise. The story centers on a fictional event that happened in Peru on the road between Lima and Cusco at noon on Friday, July 20th, 1714. A bridge woven by the Incas a century earlier collapsed at that particular moment while five people were crossing it. The collapse was witnessed by Brother Juniper, a Franciscan monk who was on his way to cross it, and wanting to show the world the world God's divine providence, he sets out to interview everyone he can find who knew the five victims. Over the course of six years, he compiles a huge book of all the evidence he gathers to show that the beginning and end of a person is all part of God's plan for that person. Part one foretells the burning of the book that occurs at the end of the novel, but it also says that one copy of Brother Juniper's book survives and is at the library of the University of San Marco, where it sits neglected. Brother Juniper works for six years on his book about the bridge collapse, trying various mathematical formulas to measure spiritual traits with no results beyond conventionally pious generalizations. He compiles his huge book of interviews with complete faith in God's goodness and justice, but a council pronounces his work heresy, and the book and Brother Juniper are burned in the town square. The novel ends with an abbess observing, There is a land of the living and a land of the dead, and the bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning. Now, um, philosophically, Thornton Wilder said that he was posing a question. Is there a direction and meaning in lives beyond the individual's own will? Describing the sources of his novel, Wilder explained, the central idea of the work, the justification for a number of human lives that comes up as a result of the sudden collapse of a bridge, uh, stems from a friendly, friendly arguments that I had with my father, a strict Calvinist. And he goes on, strict Puritans imagine God all too easily as a petty schoolmaster who minutely weighs guilt against merit. And they overlook God's uh, caritas, which is more all-encompassing and powerful. God's love has to transcend his just retribution. But in my novel, I have left this question unanswered. As I said earlier, we can only pose this question correctly and clearly and have faith one will answer the question in the right way. That's the end of the quote from Thornton Wilder. In the case of the Orlando killings, or even the Twin Towers disaster, we ha- we have to ask: Do the killers and uh, and all those murdered travel together? Um, and if that's the case, does the killer recognize his mistake at the moment that he dies? And do those killed feel anger and or or possibly forgiveness even at that moment? And finally, if the story from Plato is true, do the killers go to a place of punishment? Does this group that moves toward across the field toward the place of judgment get separated out, as Plato as uh, Plato described, with the killers going to a place of judgment at least temporarily, while the others go to a better place? 
course, different religions give different answers to such questions, but the reality is at this point we can't know for certain. The most we can say is group NDEs seem to be real. Um, and there's a really interesting story that um, about a group NDE that um, appeared actually in um, Vital Signs, the Journal of the um, International Association for Near-Death Studies. This came from Volume uh, 19 uh, back in the year 2000. <clears throat> and what it does is it describes in a in a very interesting way the uh, um, May Hewlett's story and Stephen Hoyer's w- uh, book also contains this story. It's book uh, titled Fire Weaver, the story of a life and near death and beyond. Um, May uh, was promised some things or thought she had been promised some things before her death, but she did die in February 19th, 2002 due, due to complications following a surgical procedure and she was only 52 years old. Um but this is her near-death experience, and it's a group near-death experience with two of her friends, and she describes what they saw. During the fall of 1971, when I was 22 years old, I shared a near-death experience with my cousin James and his best friend Rashad, who was from India. Both young men were on a break from school and were staying with my family on our farm. One afternoon, the three of us went to the cornfield to cut fodder. To get to the field, we had to go through a metal gate, and we took turns climbing down to open and shut it. By late afternoon, a storm started brewing in the west, and we decided to quit for the day. It was James's turn to open the gate, and as he did so, he reached up for my arm to climb back up onto the wagon. I was leaning the wrong way, and his weight pulled me toward him, Rashad grabbed my other arm to steady me, and we were in just this position when the lightning hit us. I saw the lightning sparkle along the top of the gate. The next thing we knew, we were in a large room or hall made of dark stone. The ceiling was so high and the gloom was so thick we couldn't see the top. There were no furnishings or wall hangings, just cold black stone all around. I knew I should be afraid but I just felt peaceful floating along there in the gloom with my two friends in this great dark hall. The stately walls of this place loomed above us and seemed to radiate both great power and also great masculinity. I remember thinking it would have suited King Arthur. It was at that point that I realized that the three of us were united in thought and body. Images of Arthur came to me from James and Rashad, James saw only a cosmic version of the king. Rashad seemed to be envisioning himself in the time of Arthur. As we all became conscious of each other's thoughts, I suddenly knew James and Rashad better than I had ever known anyone else. We realized there was light coming into the chamber from an archway at one end. But it was more than just light. It was a golden, embracing warmth. It gave off a feeling of peace and contentment more intense than anything we had ever felt. We were drawn into it. We weren't talking, but we were communicating with each other on 
some other level, seeing through each other's eyes. As we came to the archway and passed through, we entered a beautiful valley. There were meadows and tree-lined hills that led to tall mountains in the distance. Everything glistened with golden sparks of light. We saw that the sparkling lights were tiny, transparent bubbles that drifted in the air and sparkled in the grass. We realized that each tiny sparkle was a soul. To me, the valley appeared to be heaven, but at the same time, I knew that James and Rashad were seeing it differently. James saw it as the gulf of souls. Rashad saw it as nirvana. And somehow we knew all this without speaking. The light began gathering at the far end of the valley, and slowly out of the mist a pure white being began to materialize. I saw an angel with a strong, bright face, but not like you'd usually imagine. She was closer to a strong Viking Valkyrie, and I knew she was the special angel that watches over the women of my family, and I perceived her name to be Helena. Now James saw this same being as his late father, a career naval officer in a white dress uniform. Rashad perceived the being to be the Enlightened One, or Buddha. The being spoke first to Rashad and welcomed him. He said that Rashad's time on earth was done. He was worthy now of nirvana. Rashad asked why uh, James and I were there and was told that we were part of the reason why he was worthy of nirvana. His two great friends loved him so much that they had willingly accompanied him on his last journey. At the same time, however, James received a different message. He had been worried about what his father would think about his anti-war protest activities, and his father told him he was proud of him for standing up for what he believed. He knew he was not a coward because a coward would not have made this journey with Rashad. I received yet another message in which Helena told me she was glad I had remembered the example of strength, honesty, wisdom, and loyalty taught to me by my family. So just to, before I continue with the story, just to point out how differently three people who knew each other entirely were actually witnessing um, not only the... the um, the persona of this, of this, uh, lighted being, this enlightened one, um, uh, going from an angelic Viking Valkyrie to, uh, the Buddha, uh, to, um, James's father. And yet all of them were the same being, conceivably, or theoretically at least, because they're all interconnected with one another. They know that they're looking at the same, same being. Okay, I'll get back to the story now. We spent what seemed like an eternity in this place as we talked to our separate yet joined entities. They said they appeared to us in this way because back in the real world we were physically joined when the lightning struck us. They said it also symbolized the joining of all religions and doctrines. They said I would live to see a new age of tolerance, that the souls and hearts of humanity would be joined as the three of us were. The guides taught us that doctrine and creed and race meant nothing. No matter what we believed, we were all children joined under one God, and that the only rule was God's true law, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
We should treat all people as if they were a part of our soul because they were. All living things in the universe were connected to one another. They said that soon humanity would mature enough to assume a higher place in the universal scheme of things. But until then, we must learn acceptance and tolerance and love for each other. They said there would come a new age when people would not be able to endure seeing others homeless and hungry, that we would realize that only by helping each other could we truly help ourselves. Eventually, we were told that it was time to go. We would not be allowed to stay longer because it was not yet time for me or for James, but only for Rashad. The Enlightened One told Rashad he would have a little time before he returned to take care of his worldly affairs. James's father told him he would return to this place soon after Rashad, but the two of them had to go back now for now so that... Uh, so that um, I could, meaning um, the the one who's telling the story here, May. I said I would be. I, I said I would willingly stay here in this valley with them. But Helena told me that I had not fulfilled my destiny; that I had children yet unborn. We drifted slowly toward the archway. The pull became stronger, and we were little, literally thrown back into the world. We floated for a while there, hovering above our bodies. Some of my cousins had been in the next field and had seen what happened. We saw them all come running to where we lay. James and Rashad's hands were still stuck to my arms. We saw my cousins pry their fingers loose so they could turn Rashad over to help him. When our hands were pried loose, James and I re-entered our bodies. We felt as if we were on fire but it turned out that we had only minor injuries. Rashad, it seems, being on the end, had taken most of the charge. The doctors said that the lightning had caused damage to his heart, lungs, and liver. He remained in the hospital for several weeks. During that time, tests revealed that James had a brain tumor that would eventually claim his life. As soon as Rashad could travel, James took him home to India. He offered to stay, but Rashad told him that he, he wished solitude for his final time. Rashad took on the life of an ascetic in the Vedic tradition. He asked his wife to stay with her family because he wanted his last days to be spent in spiritual awakenings. About a year and a half later, on a cold day in January, Rashad t- returned to Nirvana. And James and I knew when his soul left the world without being told. James lived about three years after he found out that he had the brain tumor. Uh, he gave most of his considerable inheritance to a charity that educated young people in India. I, on the other hand, have survived for another 30 years so far. She, this was published in 2000. Uh, with the knowledge that this experience, which I shared with my closest friends, has been a guiding force in my life. I strive every day to meet my destiny whatever it may be, with the same quiet dignity and resolution they showed when they met theirs. They have truly been my pathfinders, and I know that the connection I shared with them so long ago is the same connection we all share. We just sometimes fail to realize it. A pretty significant (laughs) uh, and detailed, and significant because of its detail, 
this story uh, of a group NDE, um, a shared NDE, so powerful. The one thing that catches you a little bit is um, the promise that she'd been made that before her death, uh, she would see the world begin to reform. Um, she died uh, February 19th, 2002, uh, due to complications following a surgical procedure to repair one of her heart valves. And at 52, she was still pretty, pretty young. But she had been promised that um, she would see a change, uh, an awakening in the world. Um, of course, time doesn't mean that much when you're when you're looking at it from the other side. Um, but it would would have been wonderful for all of us here on Earth if that opening of our of our eyes that she had envisioned happening before her death would have happened during the life of us. Anyway, these, this is just one of hundreds, thousands of stories that we have collected at IONS. And, um, if you have had a near-death experience, I would really urge you to write up the details and submit it to the IONS office at IANDS.org because it'll be archived there for further research with or without your name being used if, as, as you wish. And of course, we're always interested in hearing your story and having you tell your story on the air as well. So drop me an email if you've had an NDE and if you'd like to discuss it on the show. And if you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. For more information about the work of IONS and our upcoming conference in Orlando, Florida in July, check that out on our website, iands.org. Tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.